On this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy, you will hear from Professor Phil Schneider, whose long-standing connection and commitment to Ohio State is very well known. This show reviews Phil's journey of nearly 50 years in our profession, reflecting on his career in the Lachalet tradition and his life after retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Weber, Chief Pharmacy Officer and Administrator of Pharmacy Services at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Powered by The Ohio State University Lachalet Leadership Program, this show is designed to keep current and aspiring health system pharmacy leaders up to date with issues, trends, and best practices affecting our profession. You can learn more about the Lashley Leadership Program and the Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy MS and Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. That's go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. Professor Snyder completed his residency and graduate degree from Ohio State after graduating from the University of Wisconsin. He has been a key leader and influencer in the current success of the pharmacy enterprise at Ohio State and the College of Pharmacy. He is also a former director and founder of the Lashley Leadership Program that sponsors this podcast. After leaving Ohio State in the late 2000s, Professor Snyder held faculty appointments at the University of Arizona Colleges of Medicine and Public Health. He is past president of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists and a member of ASHP's Visiting Leaders Program faculty. He is also past president of the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, having served for 10 years as the founding editor of Nutrition and Clinical Practice one of its two official publications. He recently completed his term as Vice President of the International Pharmaceutical Federation. He has received numerous prestigious awards for his service, including a recent Lifetime Achievement Award from the College of Pharmacy at Ohio State. So with that, let's jump into our interview. Phil, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Bob. Uh, Happy to to be here, and thanks for the invitation. It's really great to have you, Phil. I, I know you've obviously been connected to this program for many, many years. And I just wanted to uh, congratulate you on your Lifetime Achievement Award and say that your alma mater is very proud of you and is very proud in particular of everything that you have accomplished to help our patients over the past almost, I don't want to say this, Phil, but almost 50 years. <laughs> well, it seems like it's gone by pretty quickly and, uh, and I uh, have a great appreciation for the, uh, the training uh, and experience that I had at The Ohio State University. It certainly served me well in my professional career. Yes. And so uh, I've said a little bit about you in the introduction. Is there anything else you'd like for the audience to know about you? Uh, no, that's, uh, you know, certainly the professional experiences that, uh, you know, there's some other things that I've done that I'm uh, pleased about. I, I have a, a wonderful family and uh, two great children and four great grandchildren. Uh, was an active member of, of a, a local church here in Columbus and something I think you can relate to. I sang in the first congregational church gallery choir for 30 years. And so I was able to squeeze that into a a pretty busy professional life. So the work-life balance is something that I've worked pretty hard at. And uh, I'm as proud of that as I am, frankly, uh, you know, my professional uh, uh, 
uh, accomplishments. And those are things that are, are bearing fruit now, now that I'm uh, retired. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you talked a little bit about your professional organization involvement. I know you were president of ASHP, what was it, 1987 to 88? It was 88, 89. Yes. Yeah, so um, sort of reflect with us a little bit uh, what that year was like, but then how, how, has that, how did that presidency influence your growth after that as a pharmacy leader? Well, the, the, um, it was a turbulent time. Uh, the circumstances surrounding my being elected uh, president of ASHP was, uh, was unique. Uh, I was one of the few candidates for president. They usually they have two candidates, and the default, mm-hmm. default candidates are the two individuals who are completing their service on the ASHP board of directors. This particular time, because of some dissension among the membership, uh, between members and the board, between the board and the staff and so forth, uh, they felt that they needed some new life, uh, breathe some new life into the organization and offer the membership an opportunity for a different kind of a leader. Uh, Many of the uh, elected presidents at the time were directors of pharmacy uh, uh, and mostly middle-aged men. Uh, There were a few exceptions, Mary Ann Ivey and Sister Mary as Sister Gonzalez being the two women that have been president previously. Uh, but I had not been on the board of directors of, of ASHP. And so uh, one of the other individuals was a past director of pharmacy and was coming off the board. But rather than select the other uh, uh, person completing uh, the term, uh, they decided to pick me. And the rationale was that I wasn't a director of pharmacy. I was an associate director of pharmacy at the time. But I was very active in the clinical side of things, particularly in the area of nutrition support. I also had served as a, a board, uh, a, a member of the board of directors of the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, and the nominations committee felt that uh, that board service uh, was sufficient to uh, uh, slate me as one of the two candidates as an alternative. So the story gets even more interesting, Bob, because the the uh, the person who was uh, not selected, who was completing uh, her term. Uh, was uh, uh, there was a, a backs a, a groundswell of interest in uh, in uh, writing her in as a candidate. So as a result, n- none of the candidates, neither of the two candidates who were on the slate, received a simple majority, which is fifty percent plus one vote. Yes, yes. And so they had to change the constitution of the uh, of ASHP to uh, use a, a majority vote, not a simple majority. In other words, whoever gets the most votes as the the method by which the president would be selected. And secondly, they had to run the election again and provide a a second ballot. So it was a little bit atypical. I might add that during the same period of time, um, uh, the the chairman of the House of Delegates was running for a third term and the nominations, Frisky Nominations Committee that decided that they wanted to have two new candidates and not uh, nominate the uh, existing chair for a third term, which the, the, the chair is eligible for. And so the House of Delegates voted uh, uh, to write in the uh, existing chair for a third term. So neither of the two candidates that were uh, not uh, put forth by the nominations committee were elected. So I don't mean to belabor the point, but the point is, is when you said what was uh, what was it like being elected president of, of uh, ASHP? Uh, the, it, it was scary. <laughs> 
for two reasons. Yeah. I hadn't been a, I didn't have any board experience at, uh, with ASHP and working with the ASHP staff, particularly the CEO who serves as secretary of the, of the board. And also the times were such that people were interested in the change and the natives were pretty restless. I might add a third factor is that in October of 2000 or of 1987 was a Black Thursday, and that's when the stock market dropped. The, yes, it seems like a relatively small number now, but it was like eight or nine hundred points. But back then, it was a big number, and so the portfolio of ASHP shrank by about a third. And so we were meeting as a commission on uh, committee on finance uh, during that time, and so we had some financial issues and we had some political issues. Uh, to 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 address during that period of time. So, uh, so uh, I remember that uh, one of the amusing stories is that uh, the uh, Dr. Otis, who was CEO of ASHP at the time, uh, uh, met my father when uh, at a reception when I was uh, installed as president, and it, uh, said that he thought I ha would have a lot of challenges uh, serving as president, yeah, uh, having sure. uh, not uh, served on the board previously, and it would be a steep learning curve, I think is the word he used. He's a very positive man. I think he, that's probably what he said. And my dad said, well, I've known my son a lot longer than you have, and I think he'll be just fine. Well, good for him. Yeah. So then now you weathered the, obviously, that storm, and then you were a leader. And so how did that, that experience then shape your leadership style after you completed your presidency? I think uh, what I needed to do was bring ASHP back together. There was a tremendous amount of tension between the, the uh, members, the board, and the, uh, and the staff of ASHP. There was a call for new leadership uh, on the uh, staff level, for example. And so the, my presidential address, uh, I would say, uh, in reflecting on it before I was installed uh, in San Francisco, was called Synergy. And the, uh, it was based on three parts, based on my father's um, formula for preaching that he used to teach as a seminary professor. Uh, first is commonness of vision. We need to have a common vision that we share, but we need to have uh, respect for each other. We need harmony in our differences, so harmony and difference, and we need to capitalize on change. When, and it can't get much better unless things change. And so by being in an environment where change is, is happening and is important and being called for, it's our opportunity to get better. So that's the, 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 the theme. And every, pre, every presentation I said, we have a lot in common, and those are the things that bind us together as an organization. But we all have different points of view, and so we need to figure out a way to, to uh, harmonize those differences in a way that the whole is equal to greater than the sum of the parts, synergy. And furthermore, we need to look at what's happening in healthcare and, and take those changes as opportunities for us to advance as a profession. Absolutely. So that's, uh, that's, that's sort of what crystallized my thoughts right out of the gate. And that's what, uh, what has carried me forth. And I, I find myself using those three points quite often when I'm in, in a group that's struggling to figure out what to do. As what, what do we have in common? What are we doing? And let's listen to what everyone has to say and try to uh, accommodate those into some message or some decision that, that uh, doesn't necessarily accommodate everybody's opinions, but certainly recognizes their value and look at the threats that people have as, as opportunities. And so, yeah. So interestingly, you know, obviously the, the title of this is a glance in the rearview mirror, which is really kind of like, again, you wrote a, a little treatise that, uh, that we read that, talks about the six F's and, uh, 
but but before we get into that, you know, the, the sort of like the glancing of rearview mirror gives it gives me the, gets me to thinking about the mirror to hospital pharmacy as well. And as well, you you were very familiar with the mirror to hospital pharmacy, but most importantly for the audience's perspective, uh, uh, Phil was one was the person who drove for many many years the national survey. Uh, in you know, as you see in our professional journal, the ASHP National Survey focuses on various parts of pharmaceutical care within health systems, surveys the, the nation, and then obviously provides recommendations for improvement. And that really grew from the mirror to hospital pharmacy. So kind of looking back through that rearview mirror and the fact that Ohio State has been involved in with the survey now for however 57 years since 1963, uh, what do you see has, what are some like two or three things that you've seen that have really, really changed in the profession to really move us to a place where we are today. Sort of, I wouldn't say sentinel events, but sort of those, like, boom, this this event happened and really propelled us to be a better profession. What would you say two or three or four of those would be? Well, you know, the, we, one of the things we use in our, our class on medication use system management when I was still uh, teaching in the master's program was a book by Everett Rogers uh, called The Diffusion of Innovation, not The Diffusion, yes. yeah, Diffusion of Innovation. And um, it, it talks about how change really happens in decades. And what we've learned from the survey is that's generally true with uh, major sea changes in, 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 uh, in pharmacy, um, with the exception of two things. One is a law is passed and something has to be done tomorrow or next Tuesday, or a standard yeah. of practice is implemented and enforced. And so you'll start to see things like, um, you know, USP chapters and sterile product preparation, uh, sterile product compounding, uh, you know, changing a little more quickly or the federal government implementing uh, meaningful use criteria in order to get funding to support IT implementation. So, but for the most part, if I think about the sea changes, one thing that was really impressive to me early on, and we uh, used to teach this in, in our class, Dr. Peterson and I, was a, a shift from uh, uh, centralized uh, uh, drug distribution systems, notably unit dose systems, and to a lesser extent, uh, IV admixture systems. And pharmacists were, hospital pharmacists were very innovative in capturing uh, data regarding the safety of medication uh, use and, and medication errors with decentralized systems that involve nurses uh, compounding uh, medications and dispensing them to pharmacy-based systems. And so it took about 20 or 30 years for those systems to get implemented. But very quickly, with the advent of automated dispensing cabinets and linking those to patient records and enabling pharmacists to uh, check orders before a, a dose was available for administration of the patient, we saw you know, a pretty rapid uh, decentralization of drug supply and, frankly, a shift of dispensing activities from pharmacy, pharmacy to nurses and certainly from pharmacists to nurses, if we consider uh, pharmacy technicians being principally involved in restocking automated dispensing cabinets. We also, uh, even further uh, decentralizing pharmacy, enabled the growth of uh, remote order entry review and telepharmacy programs that allow smaller hospitals to actually provide safer view of medication uh, orders uh, remotely by having access to uh, patient uh, health information and being able to uh, determine access to medications from automated dispensing cabinets. So that's certainly one of them the most. Now, that could have been a huge threat for pharmacy and say, well, we guess we don't need pharmacists anymore. And in fact, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, actually 
uh, came up with an idealized design for the medication use system that essentially excluded pharmacists substantially if a computer prescriber order entry system with clinical decision support and automated dispensing cabinets were in place that they really didn't need to have any pharmacists in the idealized design. And so this was certainly a wake up call for pharmacy. And so I think what uh, I think pharmacy has been able to do uh, is to uh, leverage its the 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 training that pharmacists now have with doctor pharmacy programs being required into a, a, a the ability to improve medication use systems uh, in a very uh, in a way that's been pretty well documented now, and it has to do with preventing adverse drug events. It has to do with uh, t- uh, managing patients with therapies that have narrow, narrow therapeutic ind- indices, uh, or uh, for which medication therapy is the primary determinants of health, determinant of health. So we think about anticoagulation management services, di- uh, services for diabetes, right. uh, things of that type. Uh, uh, the ph- a pharmacist can be, uh, is, there are good data to show pharmacists can substantially improve that. And we get into pay for performance systems where we look at lengths of stay and readmissions to the hospital. Many of these are, are handled, are reflected by medication use, congestive heart failure being another good example. And so I think the, the rise of uh, the, the clinical role of pharmacists, uh, almost to the exclusion of dispensing, um, has been a, a, a substantial change that happened in, in my lifetime. Yeah. And then I think the third is the differentiated workforce. Uh, right. We're starting to see, uh, you know, a, a, when I was uh, a resident, there was only one board certified specialty in pharmacy. It was nuclear pharmacy. And I was part of a team that, that got the second one. I guess it's a tie for second. I won't... Uh, uh, pharmacotherapy and nutrition support were the, the, the second and third. Right. So we had to put together a petition to the, the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialties. And so then pharmacotherapy became so broad, they started developing added qualifications. And I don't know how many board certified specialties there are now, but it's quite a, quite a few more than, than three or four that uh, have existed almost recently. But there's also certificate programs that you can get if you're a pharmacist, but also if you're a nurse or or a physician. And the anticoagulation management is one of these multidisciplinary certificate programs that you can have and and become uh, credentials that are available to differentiate the workforce with people that have demonstrated competence. But this is also happening based on our surveys in the technician workforce. Right. And so we're starting to see, we asked the question, what are the following yes. activities mm-hmm. uh, are your technicians involved with? And we categorize yeah. those into two, two categories. One is traditional roles, and we all have non-traditional roles. And the, the involvement in technicians and non-traditional roles continues to, to increase as well. So we're seeing um, a, a highly differentiated workforce is the third major trend that I, I would cite. That's great. So it, you obviously worked very closely with Dr. Lashley. What would what would be his view of what's happening right now in pharmacy if he were still alive? Well, he would, I think, be very excited. Uh, you know, he was uh, a really out of the box thinker. To, I that's a that's a cliche to say that, but I I'll just use it for because uh, it's a perfect description. And the, the the and we were thought taught to think that way ourselves uh, right, in right. the in the program. So. When Nike was in the program, it was the it was the height of the pharmacy coordinated unit dose and drug distribution system or drug administration uh, program, where uh, pharmacy technicians were actually administering most of the medications to patients in the hospital rather than nurses, 
And the rationale for that was that there was a significant nursing shortage in the late 1960s. And in 1968, the CEO of the hospital called the department heads together and said, what kinds of things can you do in your department to help us keep beds open so that we don't have to close them because of a lack of nurses? And Cliff said, you know, medication use really is problematic. We have lots of uh, communication issues with nursing and, and uh, that, that get in the way. And furthermore, there are these studies that uh, Ken Barker and Warren McConnell did that show the incidence of medication errors is as much as 10%. And even with unit dose systems, they could reduce it by 50%. But what if we coordinated the entire program ourselves and we could take responsibility and had a high degree of standardization in the program and had pharmacists oversee it? And so they were able to convince the director of, of nursing at the time, Ruby Martin, to, to try it on a, the busiest uh, unit in the hospital, the hematology unit, and they showed that it was very successful and it freed up nursing uh, to have more time to spend with their patients. And the error rate, which was studied on a number of occasions, once by uh, Sarah White and Sonia Schultz, uh, was shown to be less than 1%. So it was you know, the lowest error rate that's ever been studied. And so here was an example of, a, of an innovative program that uh, was really out of the box. Now, those programs uh, have not sustained themselves over time because uh, nursing has feels that the administration of medications is an important part of their practice and and and, and keeping in keeping knowledgeable at the, med, the medications that their patients are receiving is it requires all that type of thing. But nevertheless, that program was in existence for 20 years, and and I think it was an outstanding program. Cliff was widely criticized when he left uh, the Ohio State University uh, to work with uh, helping get a mail services pharmacy program started uh, nice, at, nice. at Caremark. And people pilloried him for that. And he said, you know, the, uh, the distribution of medicines in the outpatient setting is essentially a pack and ship business. There's 98% of the time professional services are not uh, rendered to the patient. And there are a lot more efficient ways to distribute medicines to pay, prescription medicines to patients. And so I, I'm going I'm to getting on board with that. And so he was instrumental in helping Caremark make that a successful business. And in, in recognition for that, uh, Caremark uh, actually provided a significant contribution to the Latchelet Leadership Program, which allowed us yeah. to, to get the program off the ground, in addition to generous mm -hmm. alumni, of course, as well. But, oh, absolutely. And, and so IV admixtures, another, I'll just go, you know, go on about that. You know, we, we learned that you know, most IVs were given either IV push or through buretrols that were unlabeled and the rate of administration was not, not well controlled and there was danger in doing that. And so Cliff developed the uh, pharmacy-coordinated uh, centralized IV admixture program that really is in place in almost all hospitals. Yeah, and what I find is amazing and <clears throat> to me is, uh, particularly on the whole mail-order pharmacy, Phil, is that, I mean, that is truly you know, uh, a game changer and the fact that he had that view back then. And for what I understand, you may, you may or may not know this, but what I understand is that uh, the fact that he did uh, support that so strongly was, was one of the reasons why he was never considered for the Remington medal. I don't know whether or not that's the case or not, but I've actually heard that. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. And that's what, what I mean by out of the box. He was not afraid to do what he thought was right and what he was right, what was right for patient care, uh, not for in his own interest. Right. And that's, you know, he wasn't afraid of, of whatever impact that might have, because you're right. He was, he was criticized severely by the community pharmacy community, and it's actually benefited the community pharmacy uh, community at this point. So uh, as well, um, 
So, you know, you've talked a lot about uh, sort of how the profession has changed. Now that you're, you're transitioning into retirement and you, again, wrote a, a brief little essay on the six Fs. Let's just, why don't you just for the audience's sake, just tell us what the six Fs are and, and sort of pick one or two of your favorite, if you can, and just describe to the, to the audience why those are important to you. Well, it's just by a brief introduction, as I approached retirement, I was a little bit nervous about what was on the other side of the looking glass, to be honest. And so many of my friends said, oh, you'll never retire. You've been so busy in your professional life, you'll never be able to quit. Uh, but I found that there was a certain time in my life when I reached 70 years old, I just said, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> I, I, people ask me, how do you know? And the fact, yeah. uh, the only way I can describe it is, you know, it's like being at a restaurant and being full and you, the, the dessert menu comes and said, I, it looks like a great selection, but I, I'm just not hungry anymore. And so that's kind of the way it was. But I I did get a little bit concerned about it. So I did some reading and the two people that I read specifically that uh, I've read over my course of my time. And uh, one was uh, Edward Deming, which Cliff used to read a, a lot and he was influential for him. Uh, and also Clayton Christensen, which is, you know, the disruptive innovations, uh, uh, the person that uh, coined that term and so forth. And they both had uh, some significant uh, writing on the subject of their own retirement. And so I extracted from some of their wisdom uh, some uh, five things initially, and then my son helped me add a, a fifth. The first is, is faith. And uh, being a, a son of a, of a Lutheran minister, you know, that was always part of my life is thinking about my life in the context of something bigger than just myself and, and, and associating myself with uh, like, like beliefs. And so having sort of a, what I'd say, a rudder on the boat, uh, so to speak, that's broader than just your, your own, own thinking about yourself. Uh, the second was family, because we came from a very close family. And uh, my wife is from an Italian Catholic family that's very close. And so we've always maintained a high degree of, uh, of, uh, of commitment to our family, even though my wife and I were both very busy in our careers, which involved a lot of traveling for both of us. Um, then uh, the, second, the third is friends. And uh, the uh, friends and, uh, are... are what I've seen happen is when you retire, your friends become really important because they're the people you do stuff with all the time. You don't have a workplace to go to to interact with people that are there by, by definition. Your children grow up and move on, and obviously you can get together with them on special occasions and the high, high holy days, so to speak. Uh, but friends are really important, and it, and, you have, and it takes time. So when we've, uh, we live part-time in Arizona, part-time in Columbus, when we're gone for long periods of time, we have to rekindle those friendships. In six months, they can fade away. And so sure. um, we spend a lot of time making sure that we maintain connections with our friends in both places because mm -hmm. when we go back, uh, we depend on them for, you know, uh, to, to do things. And, and they support us when we need, we need help, those types of things. Sure. Uh, and the next is, is finances. And I, I've been really impressed by people that I know that haven't done a very good job of... Uh, of preparing for their financial needs when they get older. And it's, it's pretty sad to see. And they end up having to do things that they don't really want to do, or they have to make really difficult choices in terms of their health care and so forth. And so um, we're fortunate, uh, those of us that work in the university system in a dwindling uh, 
a program called the Defined Retirement Program that, that really takes pretty good care of that. But I've always made sure that I uh, had that and plus some tax, some, some other investments that would allow us to live a comfortable life. We don't we could make more money if we did something else in the private sector, perhaps. Um, but, um, you know, that's really an important thing. And I, I see firsthand and uh, some of the people that I spend time sure. with uh, the, the consequences of not having a, a good financial plan. And then fitness. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed is there are people, uh, when you get to your 70s, uh, if you haven't taken good care of yourself, it starts to show up with healthcare problems and you can't do stuff uh, that involve, you know, activities that, that might be fun to do anymore. And so uh, I, it's important to develop good fitness habits and stay in good physical shape. And so I think that's really a, an important thing. And the sixth one, my son added when we were having a discussion about this uh, talk over a beer one time, he says, well, what about fun, dad? Once you add, notice they all begin with F, by the way, yeah. <laughs> faith, family, friends, finances, fitness, and now fun. And I said, yeah, that's, that's true. And so, you know, you start thinking, well, what am I going to do if I if I don't go to work tomorrow. And I actually bought a book on retirement. It really was a hokey book. And the guy made a big point about that. He said, if tomorrow you get up and you don't have an office to go to, are you going to drive your wife crazy? And, and I actually did ask my wife something that really turned her off. I said, so what are we doing for lunch? And she kind of scowled at me. <laughs> but um, so I had to make sure that I had some activities that, uh, that kept me, uh, engaged with, uh, you know, and busy. And so, uh, having hobbies is important. So I, over the years yeah. I've, I've done things, uh, particularly what's, uh, played golf over the years. And that's turned out to be something that I do quite a bit. Now I still go on a ski trip, uh, uh, once a year with, uh, with Henry Manassi, uh, and I'm mm -hmm. have to be in good shape to do that. I have to be able to afford it. And then I'm doing it because sure. both of us are retired and we, we really enjoy skiing a lot. So. Sure. Um, uh, hobbies are, are, are an important thing to do. And so you have to nurture those all the way along. Some of the saddest people I've talked to are, uh, some of my friends that were physicians, particularly surgeons that were so busy with their career that they oh, yes. never really had any hobbies. And they, they really are lost after they have that highly controlled OR environment where they can tell people what to do and they're real busy and so forth. And all of a sudden all that's over. And, and there's some pretty, uh, sad cases out there that I've, I've seen. I so I think it's important to make time to, to develop uh, some avocations as well as devoting attention to your vocation. No, I would agree. I, uh, you know, I, obviously as we, you know, end, end the podcast here, um, you know, I, I always ask people, what is it they're reading? What are they seeing every day? Is there a book? Is there a news article? Is there a podcast they're listening to? I know you and I had an interesting discussion before we started about what you do every day, and maybe you can yeah. let the listeners know and then reflect a little bit on Cliff's, uh, Cliff's legacy and sort of Cliff and how he actually did the same thing that you're currently doing. Yeah. Uh, Bob had asked me what books I've read lately or what books have been influential, and I have to admit my attention span may be too short to I don't read that many books, but I what, I, what, what I do read a lot of is uh, I, every morning I spend time with uh, a local newspaper in the Wall Street Journal. And that was a habit that I can remember uh, seeing in Cliff when I went in one day to the office and he was reading the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I said, well, how, how are your stocks doing, Cliff? And he said, well, I, I'm not really interested in my stocks. I don't have any of those. 
I said, well, why are you reading the Wall Street Journal then? He said, because uh, the people that have money on the table are the ones that are the first to know. I learn more about drugs and drug development in the Wall Street Journal than I do from medical journals. And I have found that that's not just that, but just in general, having a view of, of the events and trends that are affecting the market and affecting uh, the behavior of people has become very, very interesting to me. And many newspapers that I read are, I think, highly biased one way or the other, as well as television shows. It's yeah. more commentary than it is information. But I view the Wall Street Journal, at least with the exception of the, the editorial pages at the end of the Section A, as being very objective and very factual and, and so forth. And I, I view their editorials being very thoughtful as well. And so I've enjoyed that. And that's something that uh, I don't know if I consciously or unconsciously picked it up from Cliff, but that's uh, certainly something that I do that uh, was part of his daily activity. Yeah, it's probably different than, you know, I had an aunt that uh, read the read the paper and what she read was the death notices, which <laughs> I found a little bit morbid. And from my perspective, I, I do actually read quite a bit uh the New York, I have a New York Times subscription on my phone, Phil, and mm -hmm. I actually read quite a bit. And I, I do find them to be very commenta commentary in nature and, and, and really not reporting, uh, you know, the news and, and, you know, really just sort of banging politicians and their reputations and bringing up things that are more commentary versus information. Yeah, I get that New York Times as well, as, and read the headlines and, and so forth. So I don't want to get uh, give you the impression that I'm only a one-sided point of view. Oh, no. and, and but I I find that to be a little bit less less objective, frankly, than than the uh, uh, yeah. almost even the headlines are are, are yes. uh, reflect an opinion and and so forth. Yes. And that that kind of um, turns me off. But it's it's interesting to see how people uh, all over the political spectrum uh, what they're thinking and make up my own mind based on that. Do you have a, a Cliff story that probably most people wouldn't know about that would be interesting that gives us insight into who he was and and sort of how he managed and led this pharmacy department here at Ohio State? Um, I'll tell you the one I, I, I was just thinking of a couple of things that I, I found in the resident that were kind of informative to me personally. Um, uh, one was uh, I always got pretty good evaluations from Cliff. You know, we got along mm -hmm. really well. And I think he he really respected my ability to deal with some of the constituents that he was less comfortable with, notably the medical staff. as sure. we got more involved in the clinical activities and, and so forth. So I remember when I got in my evaluation one time, he had one area that he had marked me down on and one area that he had marked me up on that was of two standard deviations different from the arrest. The area marked up, uh, he said, and uh, it was, I, I, did, I needed to get better at knowing when to give up. <laughs> I said, you just <laughs> hold on to things too long. You need to know when to fold them. And that's been true of my whole life. I have this internal lock of control that I can't stand it if something doesn't go the way I think it ought to go. And I have to really, to this day, have to work on that. And I've reflected long and hard on, on 
Cliff's advice that way. And I guess uh, if you think about an attribute that Cliff might have had that may have stood him well and maybe better than me, um, uh, was that he knew when to when to hold him and when to fold him. He wasn't afraid <laughs> to go into the line of battle, but you know he knew when to when when the battle wasn't won and when yeah. to back out. And I, I think that's something that I continue to struggle with. Um, the other was that uh, I learned in the residence that I never perceived myself as being a, a leader. I just went into the program because I thought it was a good program. And I did. I got bored being a staff pharmacist at the, at the community hospital in Columbus. Mm-hmm. But he said, you really have unre- you don't really understand how much leadership you have and uh, influence you have on your peers. Your classmates are really interested and attuned to what you do and what you think, and you need to know that. He said, "Don't don't take it for granted, but don't abuse it either. It's something that you need to know." And so there were some times when I did things that were embarrassing. And so one of the talks I give, I talk about uh, getting really fussy when I used to have provided clinic lunch coverage in the clinic pharmacy, and I'd go over there and slam my books around and get really be nasty to the patients because I didn't like doing it. One of my classmates mm-hmm. said, you really don't like going to that clinic pharmacy, do you? And I oh, said, boy. no, I don't. How did you know? And he said, well, it's pretty obvious. And they said, don't you think that's kind of selfish? You know, these are sick people that you're taking care of. And so you're giving wow. the staff an opportunity to have a lunch break. And, you know, they probably wouldn't get that if they worked in a chain drugstore. And so it really made me realize the downside to having uh, um, well, the, the responsibility, let me put it that, the responsibility of, of having a, being a, a good leader. And so, um, you know, I remember one time I wore a three-piece suit to an administrative staff meeting, and he asked me if I was trying to pretend like I was the chairman of the Department of Surgery. So, <laughs> and it was a lesson in humility to me. And I thought, well, why, why did I wear a three-piece suit to an administrative staff meeting? Well, I wore it because my wife was in the clothing business, and I thought it would look they look neat, but I didn't really think about the influence that what I wear has, uh, you know, on, on somebody's observation. And so he made me very attentive to my behavior and how I look and how I act and the fact that people notice that. And um, it's not, it's not something to take for granted. So just to let you know, Phil, just to, and you probably, probably told you this before, but we still have the administrative staff meeting on Tuesdays at nine o'clock. I'll be darned. That time has not, <laughs> it is, and I, and, you know, and people were going to change the time. We went, we wanted to change the time. And I said, wait a minute, guys, we're not changing the time. And I'll tell you why it's because it's been this way forever. Right. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been, I said, since the sixties, fifties and sixties, I said, we're not changing it. So yeah, it's every Tuesday at nine o'clock. So I find that, uh, you know, it's certain things you got to just sort of, Keep that, keep that legacy, keep that spirit going. And that's one of the ways that we do it here. So, well, Phil, it's been great to talk to you today. And I, I always appreciate your stories and I always appreciate your perceptions and views of things because, um, you know, I, I think you realize people respect you uh, a lot. They respect what you say and what you do. People listen to you and, and, and hopefully our listeners will will really hear your message and what you've talked about today that hopefully will resonate well with them. And again, as our alumni are listening here, um, please feel free to uh, tell others about this podcast and 
the great conversation that Phil and I had today. So with that, we'll sign off. And Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, uh, Bob. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. And if you found this interview helpful to your own professional development, please do us a favor and share the good news with your colleagues and leave us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts each and every week.